This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, December the 22nd, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the jingle bells and go. You will notice a theme on the show today, and that is 2023. Quig and Joyda Gupta will reflect on 14 different news stories from 2023. The conversation will range from issues in Canadian politics, like the rise of Pierre Polyev as conservative leader. You'll also hear some thoughts about the ongoing cost of living crisis and some other economic stories. And of course, you can't talk about 2023 without considering wildfires in Canada. But that's just three out of 14 different topics in what will be a very, very packed news panel. Michael McNeely will also have some selections for top films and top TV shows of the year. In fact, a few different entertainment critics are going to chime in on that one. There's also going to be a conversation of the six biggest sports stories of the year with Brock Richardson. Oof, no shortage of reflection on this edition of Now with Dave Brown, but you can't call the show now unless you actually talk about what's happening in the news in this moment. So the top story of the day, the Canadian Transportation Agency has issued a $97,500 penalty to Air Canada for violating disability regulations. Brenda Molina-Navidad has the story. The agency says that on August 30th, Air Canada failed to assist a wheelchair user to disembark its plane. The passenger, who has spastic cerebral palsy and can't move his legs, was forced to disembark on his own. As well, the CTA says Air Canada failed to ensure that its personnel periodically checked in on the passenger while he was waiting in the terminal. Air Canada acknowledged last month that it violated Canadian disability regulations regulations and apologized to a BC man who was forced to drag himself off a flight in Las Vegas this summer. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. That's probably a story that is uh, all too common and all too well known for individuals who use mobility devices and fly. In fact, when you get to some of the responses from yesterday's daily poll, there are going to be a few more reflections on the misery of travel when you have a disability. But let's shift over to another big story, and that's housing. The federal government will give Toronto $471 million in housing funding. Here's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. With today's agreement, the City of Toronto will fast-track 12,000 new homes over the next three years and well over 50,000 new homes over the next decade. Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow reflects on the dire housing situation in the city. Each night over 10,000 Torontonians sleep in city shelters. And more than 80,000 households are on a waiting list for years and years for affordable housing. And too many young people are giving up the hope of having an affordable home one day 
and it is just hard. By the way, Mayor Chow kind of tipped her hand a little bit on this one when she joined the show on Monday. So if you do want to hear the interview that I did with Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow, you can find that on the podcast. The federal government has reached deals with 16 different municipalities across the country. Staying in the housing file, Manitoba Premier Wab Canoe wants to renovate derelict and dilapidated buildings for new housing. Canoe believes that any building can add to the overall housing supply. One of the easier ways for us to move forward on adding to the housing stock as it pertains to getting people out of bus shacks and out of encampments is to find an existing hotel or an existing apartment building that's maybe not um, fit to be lived in right now. Canoe says levels of government have the authority to take on properties. Cities and municipalities do have expropriation powers, you know, city through the charter and, you know, uh, through other means. But um, if there's more that's required, we're open to that. Winnipeg Mayor Scott Gillingham does support the idea. And one more story. This one comes from the healthcare file. Alberta and the federal government have signed a $1 billion health funding agreement. Alberta plans to increase access to primary care, improve diagnostic imaging capacity, enhance access to digital health services, and expand services for youth mental health. Alberta Health Minister Adriana Lagrange addressed the state of the province's system. So we know the healthcare system in Alberta is under strain and change is needed. Our goal is to improve the delivery of healthcare for all Albertans and for our frontline workers who work so hard each and every day to serve our, their patients. Alberta Medical Association President Dr. Paul Parks expressed optimism. This is just the beginning. This is just the start. This is going to be the stabilization step. Today's announcement is an essential first step, and the minister has assured me that there will be more to come. Today's funding is an unprecedented infusion of financial support for the clinics and practices where most Albertans obtain the health care in both urban and rural settings. Alberta is the third province to cement a health funding deal since a federal framework was announced earlier this year. Oh, and what do you know? That's going to come up in the next segment of the show as part of the news panel. But for now, let's get to the Daily Polls. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, on Thursday you were asked, it's the busiest holiday week of the year. Excuse me, it's the busiest travel week of the year. I've already got holidays on the brain. What's your level of stress around holiday travel? 46% of you said very, 27% of you said somewhat, and 27% of you said not at all. Lots of responses here on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Pearly Pigtails says very, I do as little as possible. Kendall comments very. I turned down an opportunity to travel home because of the stress involved just thinking about it. I felt instant relief after three days of worry, and now by December has been awesome. I'd rather visit family in January nowadays and focus on them instead of the holiday hoopla. Tony votes for none as I don't travel. However, when I do travel, it's high. And Diane chooses somewhat. I'm a frequent traveler, so I guess I get used to the process. My biggest worry is that my wheelchair gets mistreated and found broken at arrival. Since I purchased a travel wheelchair, which folds when the plane is big enough, 
I asked to have it with me on board. There's a storage compartment for folded wheelchair in most of the biggest planes. Also, I drive. But the portable driving system that can be used in Canada and the US is not allowed in Europe. And of course, there are very few car rentals proposing adapted cars for drivers. But if things are organized well in advance and the right follow-ups are done, it works. Traveling learnings come from experience. And finally, Crystal chimes in, very, I won't do it anymore. Today's Daily Poll, also about the holidays, about giving back and charity. I'm asking you straight up at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, how do you contribute to charitable causes during the holiday? Do you donate money, donate items, volunteer, or I do not. Elizabeth Moeller, I'm not trying to shame anybody with this question, so I hope you don't feel that way. I will say that I throw a little bit of change here and there in like the Salvation Army bucket, and the folks at my building have been organizing a food drive, so I've given some uh, non-perishable food, food items to that. That's about the extent of my charitable giving this time of year. Two very important things, absolutely. I do all three, but only because I'm involved with a church where that's very easy. I don't have to go out of my way. So I donate money to our uh, our Christmas project. I donate to our angel tree, which is just what it sounds like, items under a tree for people in need and time. We have an out of the cold program. So I try to go and uh, donate a couple of hours to, to greet people at the door who might not see a friendly face and hope my face is friendly enough. Um, so yeah, but <laughs> only because it's very easy for me to do that. Like if I wasn't part of a community where it was just like, we need people do it, then I probably wouldn't. But uh, that's, that's where I'm at. There you go. I like that. Elizabeth chose all of the above. So now I'm the one who feels some shame. Laura Bain, what about you? Well, I was thinking, you know, I, I feel that both in terms of financial and time commitments, they have dropped off since I've become a student. Unfortunately, I've had to be a little bit more discriminant. So right now I volunteer my time with one organization on a regular basis that I feel has a lot of value. Um, but the fresh, the questions framed in terms of the holidays, and I don't feel like my volunteering or giving habits change in terms of the holidays. So I have some stuff that I do all year round, but yeah, that has kind of has kind of dropped off yeah. since <laughs> since being a student. But yeah, I guess I guess I'll fall in the volunteering time category mostly right now. Yeah. Hey, listen, that that's a good answer too. Like Elizabeth said, uh, ease of donation can make a big difference, and that's definitely the case for me in the sense that people in my building are doing a food drive. It just made it really easy to bring something to the front desk put it in a box and there we go, right? Like I, I do find that living in not quite the suburbs of Toronto, but the outskirts of the core, it's uh, not super easy to uh, get involved in too much stuff. So it's nice when the ease gets brought to me. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. That is the email address, or you can pick up the phone and give the show a ring, one 509 545. Coming up next, the last news panel of 2023 kicks off with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. 14 topics to get to in the next 49 minutes. The first series of topics will all relate to Canadian politics, including the rise of Pierre Poiliev as Conservative Party leader. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's the last Friday of the broadcast year and therefore the last news panel of 2023. Let's bring in the panelists. Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Hello, Michelle. Morning, Dave. And hello, Joita. Morning, everyone. All right, we have 14 different topics to get to in the next 46 minutes. So let's jump right in. 2023 was a busy news year. Let's try to recap it in less than an hour. The best way to do this is by breaking it down into categories and themes. So this segment is all about Canadian politics. And the only place to start is Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. He spent 2023 cementing his own place as party leader. He also spent 2023 climbing in the polls. Most national polls have the Conservatives winning an easy majority in the next federal election. Michelle, what's your takeaway from Pierre Polyev's 2023? This was the year he officially arrived on the national scene. He'd been a huge player within the party circles for ages, but now I'd say he's a household name. He was even voted Newsmaker of the Year by most newsroom editors surveyed in CP's Newsmaker Survey of the Year. And uh, he is going to be the one to watch. He's, I think he's going to be the dominant player in federal politics for the next year or two, which of course is exactly when it matters because we're facing a, a, an election no later than 2025. So he's got the wind at his back, heading into whatever lies ahead on that front. Joita, my observation on Pierre Polyev is he's found himself some winning issues. He clearly communicates on them, cost of living, housing, addiction. He has found those sweet spots. He hits his points hard. He's done a great job of branding. And I think he was underestimated by uh, our industry in the media. And I believe he was underestimated by a lot of politicians as well. And he's basically eaten 2023 for breakfast. Yeah, he certainly had a good year, and I have to say he's done really well in the polls. He, he was neck-to-neck -neck for most of the beginning of this year, and then he leaps ahead. Uh, and even now, though the lead for the, the Tories is somewhat slipping, he's still in a wide—he's he's widely ahead of the competition. So he's certainly done well this year. Uh, the one thing I would caution is, is assuming that that necessarily means a translation into personal popularity for Polyev moving forward, especially as we get closer to that election. One has to wonder how much of this has to do with uh, Pierre Polyev and his personal qualities and his abilities to com communicate an issue effectively and, as you say, have the wind at his back, and how much of it has to do with disenchantment with the uh, existing Liberal Party or people just not caring. Um, a lot of people have made the argument that Pierre Polyev's popularity stems from the the whole notion of uh, economy stupid, which means when the economy is doing badly, people are more likely to blame the government in power. And if the economic situation improves, that might actually change the fortunes of the liberals and Pierre Polyev. So I'm a little less confident that his seismic lead right now will actually translate into um, sweeping the elections in 2025, but that's still quite a ways away. So we'll have to wait and watch. Yeah, just the, the end conclusion here is just quality year, the importance of communication and finding winning issues, and the guy did that. There's no doubt about it. Okay. He did, yeah. The federal government reached a tentative health care funding <laughs> agreement with the provinces in February. Billions of dollars of spending will be injected into provincial systems. The granular details of the agreements are still being finalized, but three provinces are already on board here completely. BC, PEI, and as recently as yesterday, Alberta. Joita, how do you reflect on health care policy as the year comes to a close? 
I'm just glad that they, people have stopped quarreling about it, left, right, and center. Uh, I'm always <laughs> happy to see announcements about funding for healthcare, and we've just had announcements about rolling out dental care, which I think will be a huge uh, boon to many Canadians across the country. With all of that said, though, my biggest concern coming away from this year is announcements are well and good, agreements yeah. are well and good, even putting money towards uh, healthcare is you know, desperately needed, and it's all well and good. But so much of this, the issues that we've talked about throughout the year remain issues to this day, whether it's long wait times, access to healthcare in rural parts of the country, uh, staff shortages. So I think it needs a little bit more than money. And I would be very curious to see what implementation looks like if I had to truly reflect on how effective these announcements have been. Ask me again in 12 months time at the end of next year, because that's hopefully when we'll actually see results of the announcements made this year and the agreement struck this year. Yeah, the situation on the ground is quite bad right now. Quebec is having ER issues. Regina, Saskatchewan has reported ER issues this week. There's a lot of strain going on in the system in real time. So whatever optimism or positivity you might want to reflect in regards to spending, right now execution isn't there. But Michelle, my takeaway on this is digital accountability. Like accountability was built into this funding deal. You have to start showing wait times as a province, as part of your health authorities on surgeries, on staffing, family doctor access, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At the very least, my takeaway is there's been a shift towards modernization of the healthcare system in 2023, and that's a positive. That is a positive, and I would argue another one is the fact that obviously issues that once seemed intractable can at some point be resolved. You might remember last year, health was a seriously contentious issue among the feds and the provinces to the point where some health ministers walked out of a meeting. I don't know if you remember, we, we talked about it on the panel at that point, but it was, a, it was, a, it, there were, everyone was very locked into their position. There was no movement at all. And yet here we are at the end of 2023 with three deals in place, including one of the most anti-federal provinces. Uh, Alberta signed on. That's a pretty big win for the feds. So um, it, it's kind of hopeful on that front. But I, like Joita, I remain a little bit skeptical. And I look as my model to the $10 a day child care programs that were rolled out and announced with the feds. Those programs have not been smoothly spun out. Uh, a number of provinces have reported issues and backlogs and the fact that the programs are not yet in place. So until we see those dollars actually spent and delivering services healthcare-wise, I too am a little skeptical as to how it's going to play out. All right, we're moving well here. Let's move over to foreign interference in Canadian politics because foreign interference was on the radar for huge swaths of the year with two key focal points. Whether the federal government would call a public inquiry into Chinese interference in elections. In the end, they did, after quite a bit of drama. The other popped up at the end of the summer. Canada accused the Indian government of being involved in the assassination of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. Michelle, where's your mind on the foreign interference issue as 2023 comes to a close? I think this one has potential to be an election issue. I don't think this issue is going away at any point. The, the Liberals handling of it initially exposed them to a lot of criticism that they did then to walk back. And foreign interference allegations, it, it, it sounds in theory, I think, like one of those issues that people won't really care about because it's very inside baseball or it can be. But we've seen how rhetoric around foreign interference can play out. It does affect people where they live in their communities. People do, members of diasporas do face repercussions around allegations like this. So I do think this is going to be an issue that persists. There's going to be a lot of demands for accountability. The India issue is nowhere near resolved. China's influence shows no signs of diminishing and the relationship is not warming up at all. Uh, so I don't think we're anywhere near done with this one. I think this was the opening chapter of a much longer and, and potentially uglier saga. 
You know, Joita, I'm inclined to disagree a little bit with Michelle on this one, considering the accusation that was levied towards the Indian government in September about assassinating Canadian citizens on Canadian soil, the temperature on that one went down in a big way. There's no doubt that it can still simmer or bubble or boil, but I actually kind of disagree. I think this is not a political winning issue for anybody involved, and that's why I think over the course of the last two or three months, it's really died down. Um, I'm, I don't entirely agree with your position or Michelle's for that matter. I think the the Indian issue has certainly simmered down. It, it, it reached a peak in the fall um, mm -hmm. and Trudeau took a lot of heat over it initially, but they've since made some arrests in relation to the assassination attempt. So it has bolstered Trudeau's position. And as you said, lots of drama around the uh, public inquiry into Chinese election interference. And I think these issues remain very relevant to this day, including with the election coming up. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what the public inquiry re reveals um, and mm -hmm. what findings and recommendations are made. But the specter of foreign interference in the and the upcoming federal elections is a very real one. And I think the impact of anything that is done today to mitigate um, foreign interference, we will probably see the results of that maybe 18 months from now when the next election rolls around. So it's a very much a live issue, and I think it's going to be one that continues to dominate the headlines. Uh, it has in 2023, and I think it will continue to do so in 2024. Okay, the year comes to a close with the Liberals and NDP still engaged in their supply and <clears throat> confidence agreement. There have been some bumps along the way, and there's still some tension around universal pharmacare frameworks. But there's been expansion of daycare, although, like Michelle mentioned, the rollout has not been wildly smooth. The dental care framework has been unveiled, and there's been some alignment on housing, grocery costs, and the carbon price. Some alignment. Joita, what's your perception of the supply and confidence agreement heading into 2024? I think we're finally seeing concrete results. We've had uh, the dental care announcement recently, and we are seeing some movement towards uh, improving it on daycare as well as rolling out a pharma care plan. So it's one of those situations which, if the implementation around some of their these key policy areas is successful, these are easy wins for the Liberals going forward. It remains to be seen to what extent the NDP can leverage the issue to say that we put a lot of pressure on the Liberal government to make it happen, which it would be true, but whether or not it would resonate with voters is is you know is is a whole other question. I also think it's very interesting to see what kind of an impact this would have on the um, on the Tory position because once people have uh, dental care and it's been you know they benefited from it for a little under two years, even if they didn't vote for dental care originally or they didn't care about it, if they benefit from it two years down the line, they'd be less likely to want to get rid of it. And so it really puts the Tories in an interesting position as to how they. Uh, position themselves vis-a-vis -vis some of these programs. Do they keep them? Do they change them? Do they uh, get rid of them? So it'll be, it's it certainly changed the landscape uh, and we are seeing some very tangible and concrete benefits come out of the conference and supply agreement. So I don't see that going in, anywhere, but it remains to be seen who really benefits, whether it's the Liberals or the NDP. Michelle, I still perceive the marriage as being an uneasy one, but it's one that's proven mm -hmm. to be mutually beneficial for both of them because no, the Liberals nor the NDP want an election right now. We talked about <laughs> those polling yes. numbers as they currently <laughs> stand. And the fact is, where I believe that foreign interference is not a winning political issue, I believe that all of these policies that are trickling out of this agreement could be big-time political winning issues. So I believe the marriage stays uneasy in 2024. Nobody 
in that marriage wants to get out of it in any kind of concrete way. So I see this, I see this perception as a uh, uneasy marriage, but one that uh, they're both happy to be in. Yeah, I would probably agree with that. Now, it has been interesting to watch Jagmeet Singh part company with Trudeau more often in, in recent months than we saw earlier in this agreement. Um, there was even one issue where they said that they might not vote with the, with the Liberals. So there's been a little more saber rattling and a, bit, a few more sounds of discontent. <clears throat> Whether that's a sign of true unease or just some some effort to distinguish themselves from the Liberals, because they do face quite a lot of opposition commentary about a coalition and how they're tired with the same brush, etc. So maybe that's some baggage that the Liberal that the NDP is a little less willing to shoulder now. But I, at the end of the day, I do think that the benefits outweigh the drawbacks for those two parties in staying aligned and staying together. Certainly, the Liberals definitely need the help very badly. They they are still a minority government and they they cannot execute their agenda without that NDP support. But I think you're right that uh, 2025 is the year that most people have in mind. That's when the deal ends. And I think that everyone's going to try to keep their powder dry to sort of try to get some of the wind out of the conservative sales ahead of that year. All right. One note here on regional politics. There were four provincial or territorial elections this year. Prince Edward Islanders, Albertans, Manitobans and Northwest Territorians all went to the polls. Dennis King and the Progressive Conservatives won in PEI. Daniel Smith and the United Conservative Party won in Alberta. Wab Canoe and the NDP won in Manitoba. And R.J. Simpson is the new premier in the Northwest Territories. Michelle, which of these results do you find most compelling? Uh, the Wab Canoes victory was obviously a huge moment. First uh, First Nations premier of a province elected. It was very exciting for a lot of people. But Danielle Smith is proving to be a pretty consequential player on the federal scene. Uh, she's a disruptor. She she makes no bones about the fact that she has a lot of issues with the federal government and intends to make those fights quite public. Uh, the CPP issue in Alberta, of course, is just beginning to really wind up, wind, uh, gear up, I should say. Um, there's a pretty long bruising fight expected there. So Wab Canoes, I think, is is deeply significant on a number of levels, but Daniel Smith's is having the most immediate federal impact, I would argue. Yeah, you'll find agreement with me there. Uh, Daniel Smith uh, won a majority, consolidated power in the party, and is immediately gone to try and change the face of Alberta and put herself on the federal stage. You mentioned their own potential pension plan and also doing a lot of health care reform. You know, it's so funny. So many politicians will tell you, we need years to consult and study. No, 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 no. The Alberta, the, uh, the UCP in Alberta says, let's go make some changes and we're just going to plow ahead. And in a way, it's almost admirable. So uh, Danielle Smith by far is the most compelling uh, politician on the regional stage this year. Juita, what about you? Which of these election results do you find most compelling? I agree with the both of you. I think Wab Kanu as the first Indigenous Premier is a very significant for all, for the country. Uh, but Danielle Smith, who was originally not uh, predicted to win the election. I mean, historically, the the conservatives do well in Alberta, but in this particular in a preceding election, she wasn't the favorite to win, and yet she pulled out that win and has continued to make waves uh, provincially and federally. So I would definitely say that's been the most significant election. The other thing to note, and I think uh, it is worth considering, is that now uh, out of 10 uh, provincial leaders, uh, only one is a liberal, two are now NDP, and the rest are conservatives of any stri of various stripes. So it remains to be seen whether this is uh, whether this portends um, 
the fate of federal politics in a year or so to come. And also puts Trudeau in a difficult position because he, now he's really effectively got one ally provincially and he's being attacked by nine others. So it'll be very interesting to see how provincial and federal relationships play out in the next year as well. Okay, that's politics. Coming up after the break, it's all about the economy, including the ongoing cost of living crisis. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Let's continue the year in review. 2023 was a very interesting year in the world of economics. The notion of a recession, I'm putting the air quotes up with my fingers there, loomed over any broader conversation about the economy. So did the cost of living, inflate, interest rates went up, economic growth and the employment rate stagnated, inflation slowed down, but the actual cost of living got higher. Let's pull at a few different threads, starting with the cost of living. It is fair to say that overall inflation eased in 2023, but cost of living still put a major strain on people's finances. Grocery prices in Canada still outpace general inflation. The cost of housing was almost double digits higher year over year, even though home prices themselves were stable. The only core number that offered much relief was the cost of fuel. Gasoline prices ended up the year a smidge lower than where they started. And I'm actually going to take the first swing at this topic because I've been banging on about the man-made recession of 2023 for basically 12 months now, where a lot of folks at central banks think that monetary policy is the big driver on inflation and cost of living right now, when in reality, it's fuel prices and the cost of energy. That's what started the inflationary spike, and that's what's putting downward pressure on inflation right now, while monetary policy continues to drive inflation up. So, Joita, this is where I'm trying to reconcile the big picture with microeconomic data. Right now, monetary policy is failing people, not helping people. Yeah, I think that's the sentiment that is why getting a, a lot of traction um, and that that monetary policy is not really doing what it was intended to do and is driving people further into despair. Cost of living, I would have to say, has been the issue mm -hmm. for 2023. Yeah. Beyond mm -hmm. politics, beyond uh, even international conflicts. For the average Canadian, I would say this is the the one issue that has hurt the pocketbook and has taken uh, and has and has rightly, I suspect, proved to be a tremendous preoccupation for average Canadian voters and the politicians who represent them. But I don't know if we're really digging ourselves out of this mess anytime soon. House prices remain staggeringly high. Uh, according to one recent stat, only 25% of Canadian families can afford to buy a single family home. So what becomes of the rest of us? That's a question for, I suspect, another segment or another topic. Uh, but it's I think the it's, price it's on coming up next. <laughs> but I think the price on groceries continues to be the one where I feel the deepest discontent. Uh, the, the, the fact that prices of groceries continue to outstrip inflationary growth in the way that they do means that people who are the most marginalized can't afford to put things on the table. And even for those of us who may be working, may have good jobs, 
uh, we are all feeling the pinch. And I think we have to really ask ourselves intelligent questions about why it is that grocery prices continue to remain as high as they do. I know last year, greedflation was a big story that was floated. Is it all greedflation? I'm starting to think there's more to it than that. Than that. Uh, so I think moving forward, we really do need to have intelligent conversations about grocery prices, whether that includes things like some form of price fixing or some form of subsidies to, you know, because there were stories about people not being able to afford salt and oil. So I think groceries is, a, uh, the price of groceries is one that isn't going to go away from the, the media landscape anytime soon. And it's the one that politicians needed to act on yesterday. Michelle, I'm just going to offer one little more piece of context here before I throw to you in regards to my man-made recession points. When I'm talking about monetary policy, I'm specifically referring to high interest rates. Interest and rates, th yeah, And that's, that's where you look yeah. at the cost of housing being double digits higher year over year. That is driven entirely by monetary policy because home prices have been stagnant. And that needs to be deeply triple, quadruple, quintuple examined at this point at any level of economic analysis. And Although it's gaining some traction, I don't think it's getting enough traction on how much of any economic slowdown that's occurred this year is entirely man-made, and any kind of inflation slowdown is strictly because of energy prices. Okay, Michelle, how are you reconciling the big economic picture with some of the more micro data points of the economy? How, how do you really feel, though, Dave, is what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, this, the Bank of Canada is is has been under a lot of pressure lately to definitely not to raise the rates a lot of pressure to lower them or at least stay put and that is what the bank of canada has opted to do next year i think the the, the fairly loud chorus of lower the inflation rate is going to become almost deafening um that is where i think a lot of people's anger is is focused right now and i agree with you both this is really the issue we talked about a number of potential ballot box issues last segment this really is the one where people care the most this is why Pierre Polyev has had so much success with his messaging this year. It all comes back down to this issue here. Like Joita, I also am going to be watching with quite a bit of interest about the grocery efforts to get those prices under control. <clears throat> um, excuse me, there's lots of drama that continues there. Um, CEO is being taken to task for comments that they've made about this sort of issue. Uh, compliance with the grocery code of conduct, efforts to get that implemented. I don't think anyone really believes any of it will have any difference until they start to see those prices come down. And in order for that to happen, like Joita, I think is some, uh, some insight into how a pretty complex system works would go a long way to uh, helping to unpack exactly where the issue lies. Okay, let's, uh, Joita mentioned housing. I think we've all sort of talked about housing here. So let's try to be quick on our points on this one. I know it's a topic that mm. we've covered a ton, but there has been consensus this year in regard to housing. Pretty much everybody agrees there's a housing crisis in Canada. Why there's a crisis and how to fix it, that's where consensus continues to lack. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation estimates that Canada will need to build over 3 million housing units over the next seven years to restore affordability to the market. The Fed's probably provinces and cities, they're all throwing money at the issue, but the housing starts deficit, i.e. new builds, that deficit continues to grow. Michelle, your big thought on the housing crisis. This was interesting to watch this become the year that everyone acknowledged it as a crisis. Uh, that was not, not a chorus that was universally adopted, I would say, until this year. Everyone's there now, but 
zero strategy, zero consensus on how best to deal with it, zero agreement on what the underlying causes may be. Um, I, I, this is one where there's, there's a, a great need for urgent action, but there's so many uncoordinated pieces of the puzzle that I have some concerns about how this is all going to unfold. Joita, your big thought on the housing crisis. Well, I think it's a complex issue, and at least it's an improvement of sorts to see that everybody now agrees that it has reached a tipping point. I know there are some ideas being floated about uh, returning to the a post-war model of building housing, uh, and we have seen some starts to try and meet that, that, that deficit in new bills, but whether or not it'll be enough remains to be seen. Certainly, there are other models of housing that can be considered more funding towards co-ops and things like that might go a long way towards alleviating the housing crisis. Your big thought, Joita, your big thought. Fast, please. Yeah, well, that's my big thought. I mean, it's tricky to, to to manage housing policy because on the one hand, you want to build new affordable housing, but at the same time, for a lot of Canadians, the housing that they already own is their, is their vehicle for saving in retirement. So you also don't want to devalue existing housing. How you make everybody happy is a question that is beyond my pay grade. Okay. <laughs> There's been a lot of uh, spaghetti thrown at the wall this year. Uh, there's been an attempted crackdown by a couple of provinces when it comes to short-term rentals like Airbnb. There's also been some retrofitting ideas. There's been the idea of expanding density like laneway and backyard homes. But I've promised you this for months. Dave Brown Consulting has done some math on solving the housing crisis. As I mentioned, there have been a number of announcements on affordable housing construction in a few provinces this year. It worked out to about $350,000 per unit, on average, on average. I'm going to round up to $400,000, just for the sake of simplifying the math. Using the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation estimate of 3.5 million homes needed, the math is big, but it's actually quite a simple equation. 3.5 million times 400,000. $1.4 trillion. If you put solving the houses, housing crisis solely at the feet of governments, that's the cost. $1.4 trillion. Putting it in real terms for you. Wow. That's, that's what it is, according to Dave wow. Brown Consulting. <laughs> now, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling these numbers. Was, but, but I'm pulling these numbers. That's a low ball, but anyways, that's... Because you can't Are just you build actually, housing. You you also have to think about the infrastructure that goes along with it. So it's probably way more than that. But, it's, okay, but, be but true. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm basing this on numbers that were released by provinces for their various projects. So like they're, they're, there's some estimate going on here, but 1.4 yeah. trill, 1.4 trill minimum. So you're arguing for PPPs then? What's uh, public-private public partnerships? Private partnership, yeah. mm, I'm arguing for probably crown corporations. I think. Yeah, I think at this I point, yeah, at, at this one. point, if yeah. if, I, if I'm a level of government, I'm at the point where I'm, it, the private sector is part of the reason why the housing crisis is happening. So I'm not leaving yeah. it in the private sector's ha uh, uh, hands to fix yeah, it, right? Funny. Like, <laughs> I wanted to be sure about you. <laughs> but, like, but but that's where Juliet is talking about <laughs> yeah. this post-war model, like the post-war model, yes, the 1940s exactly. and 50s model of saying we're going to build a lot of very similar houses that are going to involve density of either townhouses or very tight-packed single-family homes like like there's there's a way to do this and there is a model it can even be things like uh, mobile homes for example right like you can build 2,000 square foot mobile homes for about a hundred thousand dollars so yes land and infrastructure all those other costs but like like there's a number you can put on this and and yes like it, it's going to cost a ton but what's the end like positive social result if you spend the money right it's like that's what it boils down to
Mm. Yeah, exactly. And housing is a social good, but that's uh, another. Yeah, that's, yeah. And I think we've unpacked that one quite a bit over the course of the years. So let's move on to probably the other biggest economic story of 2023, and that's labor unrest. 2023 was a yeah. major year on the labor front. There were notable public sector and private sector strikes. Are you ready? I'm about to list off some prominent ones. Federal Public Service, Hollywood, BC Ports, liquor store workers in Manitoba, grocery workers in Ontario, Quebec's public sector, the auto workers on both sides of the border, St. Lawrence Seaway strike. Those are eight big ones, but there've been a whole bunch, bunch more. Joita, what did 2023 suggest to you about organized labor? That it has been a good year for organized labor. Lots of uh, strikes happening, a lot of labor unrest taking place, which isn't all that surprising because we've already laid out the reasoning, the cost of living crisis, the crunch on housing. People uh, turn to unions and turn to things like strikes and other forms of organized protest when they, their incomes don't keep up with the cost of living. It's as simple as that. So there have been some interesting evolutions. Uh, it's obviously uh, worth, there was a story earlier this year about a union for um, contract workers, so-called independent contractors. And so it does also create an opportunity for unions to organize in different ways as we recognize that the nature of work itself is shifting. But I don't see the drive towards unionization strikes and labor struggles disappearing anytime soon because we are far away from restoring an equilibrium between people's wages and the cost of living, as we've said in, a, in previous conversations today. Michelle, I'm going to let you go first on this because I actually wonder if you and I are sharing a brain. What did 2023 suggest to you about organized labor? Um, well, I, it's undeniable. This was a huge year for them. They're the ones with momentum here. And I'm very interested by the two things. The strategy of preemptive strike mandates. This is something that a lot of unions have been taking into these. And, and I'll note that almost every one of the strikes that you mentioned, Dave, did result in big gains for the unions, except for the Quebec situation, which is still ongoing. So we don't know how that one's going to play out. So preemptive strike mandates was a tool that got used quite effectively in a number of places as a bargaining strategy. And also the, the, the just the the size and the degree of, of wage gains that were implemented, salary gains, there was interest, a lot of language around outsourcing work and, and bringing in protections for contract workers or trying to convert them for more stable employment. So some, some long, long standing issues actually seem to have gotten some meaningful attention in collective bargaining. And that's what I find interesting. And I'll be interested to see, A, how much that momentum can continue before there inevitably goes some anti-union pushback. Okay, we didn't quite share a brain on this. I want to point to two strikes in particular, the BC port and the grocery workers in Ontario. In both cases, the union ended up rejecting initial deals fought mm. for by their yeah. leadership. And again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. In fact, I think we've talked about it on the show collectively, that it's not necessarily a bad thing that union rank-and-file members told their leadership, hey, you didn't get the deal that we want. But it did suggest something to me about unanimity and the difficulty of unanimity in society collectively. And it, it spoke to the power of organized labor, and it spoke to the power of workers, rank-and-file workers, as opposed to broader leadership in the unions. And that was one of my big takeaways here, because even in the auto workers strikes, there were certainly all of them got ratified, but there was some uh, pretty strong back and forth on whether or not they would be ratified in their initial conception. So that was something that struck me about organized labor in 2023. One more from the economy, something that loomed over the entire economic conversation this year was instability in financial institutions. 
I know it feels like a long time ago, but Silicon Valley Bank went bust early in the year. Several small banks in the United States followed suit. Regulators and the government rushed in to assure the stability of the American financial system. A few weeks later, Credit Suisse, one of the biggest banks in Europe, collapsed. Regulators swept in again to arrange a sale of Credit Suisse, primarily to UBS. Canadian banks continued to make billions of dollars in profits. They did lay off chunks of their staff, though, and they have publicly stated concern over the number of bad loans they're holding. For example, the Bank of Montreal is getting out of the car loan business. Michelle, your observation about stability in the financial sector, uh, I know it was real doom and gloom about nine months ago, but there's certainly been stability over the course of the latter part of the year. There has, yeah. And and certainly within Canada, which is where I feel the most qualified to comment, uh, Canada's financial sector has been among the most stable for a very long time. Um, the, the big five banks are, are doing quite well. Thank you very much. Uh, they're also among the engines I would think that would be considered too big to fail here in Canada. So I feel like a lot of us here are a little more shielded from some of that more, fi more global financial turmoil. And certainly our banking sector is not one that I have uh, lost a lot of sleep over worrying about this past <laughs> this past mm -hmm. calendar year. I was losing a lot of sleep in February and March because to me, Joita, it felt like some symptoms of 2008 looming back into the economy. But I wonder how much of that ended up just being a shock of sharply increased interest rates in a short period of time. But regulators and the government were certainly ready for this one, uh, unlike 2008. Nobody got caught with their pants down. Yeah, I think in general, there were some of those symptoms uh, earlier this year, but the Canadian banking system has always been a little more regulated than their American and counterparts. So you're not going to see those shockwaves. I doubt we'll see any major bank in Canada collapse in the next 12 months, even if they are uh, in the unfortunate position of having to lay off some of their workforce. Um, it is worth noting that Canadian banks continue to make record profits. So I would, I'm not going to be losing a lot <laughs> okay. of sleep about, you know, the fact that our banks aren't doing as well as they have always done. Um, it would be very interesting to see if uh, there have been some interesting stories about banks closing branches and especially yes. in far flung parts yes. of the country. And I think that part, that story was very interesting to me. And it'd be very interesting to see how banks uh, mitigate that situation where people weren't actually able to access tellers and services in a local branch. I floated the idea of banks actually sharing uh, responsibilities for some of these uh, out-of-the-way places in Canada. Whether anyone in the top five banks in Canada listens to me is a whole other question, but that is a big issue for Canadians just in, in terms of doing their day-to-day -day banking. Yeah, I think that's a perfect... And it's worth mentioning Canada Post is perennial as a perennial option that always comes up in these conversations. Yeah, post, postal banking. And I think that's kind yeah. of a beautiful spot to kind of wrap this up because when you're talking about the economy, there's the macro numbers versus the micro numbers. And I think at the end of the year, you look at the macro data and say, oh, it was a fine year economically, but then you start talking to people and it was brutal. So I think that's one of the interesting complications in trying to broadly talk about the economy that some signs of health can be quite easily evident and some signs of unhealth can be uh, quite evident as well. Okay, let's tuck the economy away into a safe deposit box. Coming up after the break, the other three biggest news stories of the year, wildfires in Canada, international conflict, and artificial intelligence. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's the last segment of the last Now News panel of 2023 on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. No theme to this last segment, but there are three major news stories that need attention. 2023 was a re record year for wildfires in Canada. The number of wildfires was the highest in recorded history. The amount of land scorched was also the highest in recorded history. Communities all over the country were impacted and evacuated. Juita, what's your reflection on 2023 wildfires in Canada? And I think this is the beginning of a much bigger problem. It's not a one-off event. I think a lot of people recognize that. Yeah. We need concrete policy change uh, on the climate file, which is the root cause here. And there's an incredible quagmire as to you know why we don't have consensus and more activism and action around the climate. I don't know if we really have the time to get into that today. But the interesting thread to pull on as well is that a lot of these crises could have been avoided if we had properly funded uh, firefighting efforts and fire mitigation efforts and prevention efforts. There were some stories in the in earlier in the year about how there were cuts made to firefighting services, which may have resulted in the spread of wildfires. So had those programs and services and funding been in place, we wouldn't have had as much devastation as we saw this year. Michelle, I also have infrastructure on the brain, specifically the Nova Scotia wildfires. The idea there was only one yeah. road in or out of the community most affected by wildfire still boggles my mind. It's pretty remarkable. And yeah, I think my big takeaway, is this is the year that climate change became real to more people. And it's because of stuff like this. We are at the point now where cities, provinces, countries are, are acknowledging that there there is a need to do things fundamentally differently, that aspects of urban design have to be completely rethought from the ground up, that climate change is a presence that is going to fundamentally transform how we live and how it's got to be done. And policy is just kind of starting to catch up to that. But I, I also feel that these the poor air quality advisories and all the things that kind of impinged on people's everyday lives is what really brought this issue home to people, made them realize that, yeah, this probably is here to stay. I'm with Joita on that. I don't think this year is a one-off at all. And uh, I think is making the issue feel more urgent. Uh, than it perhaps has for some people who might have been on the bubble before. This conversation has been very Canadian-centric. Let's take a little time to talk about international conflict because it did have a major impact on the year. The Russia-Ukraine war grinds on. Israel, Gaza, and the surrounding region are once again engaged in active conflict. There's also been substantial political unrest in parts of Western and Central Africa. Conflict continues between Azerbaijan and the Armenian people, as does asymmetric warfare in Yemen, largely funded by Saudi Arabia. Those are the big ones, but conflict and tension is brambling all over the globe. Michelle, how are you processing the scale of international conflict in this moment? It's very difficult. And I, I just want to acknowledge that I think this is probably the case for most Canadians because of all the various diasporas that are in place here. These global conflicts have direct repercussions on people all over the world. And it's really hard to process this. There are emotional conversations. And that makes it difficult to tackle uh, from a sort of more political or policy aspect in those wars where that becomes an issue because emotions are so high. It's very difficult to have these kinds of conversations, to watch these scenarios play out. And uh, I, I unfortunately don't have a whole lot of positive uh, prognosticating to do. 
for the year ahead. We're going to get to positive in a second. We're going to get to positive in a second. <laughs> but in the real world, it is fair to note that this conflict has been significant in all reaches of the world. And Joita, one of the things that I take away or reflect upon is that there was bound to be some instability on the back end coming out of the pandemic just because of the strain on resources and the general tension that was created in the world, I did not necessarily see the vastness of conflict that's occurring. Because I just named some of the big ones, but there's a mm -hmm. lot of tension brewing all over the globe. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the worst part is there's no end in sight. Uh, the yeah. the Ukraine-Russia conflict, it looks like it's dragging on in perpetuity. No one thought it would drag out as long as it has. I wouldn't even be surprised, and this gives me great dismay to say out loud, that we'd still be talking about this in 12 months' time. Now, the Israel-Gaza conflict, on the other hand, is a lot more interesting. I think originally the quote-unquote Western powers had a lot more sympathy for Israel after the uh, massacre in early October for which Hamas took responsibility. But I think patience with Israel is wearing thin. So I think there will be more pressure put on both sides of that conflict to try and... I don't think we're anywhere near a permanent solution to that whole kettle of worms. Um, oh, but I, I do think we might be looking at something of, of a temporary ceasefire. Uh, but the world has certainly become a more precarious place in the last 12 months. Uh, yes, partly due to the pressure put on by the pandemic, but these are also long-standing issues and fault lines that predate the pandemic. Yeah. And I don't see those issues yeah. getting ironed out anytime soon because it has it just goes to show you that diplomacy is a worthwhile solution in theory, but we're not being able to find diplomatic solutions and things yeah. are flaring up all over the place. Let's shift over to artificial intelligence. That was in the spotlight throughout the years. Specifically, chat GPT was the centerpiece, but... AI continued to trickle into industries all over the economy, even though artificial intelligence is nothing new, it felt way more prominent. Michelle, where are you sure at did. on AI at the year's end? I'm fascinated, but also kind of nervous. And I am slightly comforted by the fact that the EU uh, late this year, sort of at the tail end of 2023, brought in some regulatory potential frameworks for helping to govern it and regulate its use and the issues like surveillance and some of the other areas where people have been voicing a lot of concern as they watch this technology really take off. So it's a fascinating time. I do think AI, I'm here for AI in, in most respects, but I do think that uh, we, we run a lot of risks that need to be mitigated and it's nice to see some initial steps being taken in that direction. Yeah, it's nice to know the robots are not as smart as we think they are. I don't know if you've read any of the copy that's popped up in newspapers or on magazines like Sports Illustrated that were written by AI. It's awful. So they're not going to steal any copywriter jobs uh, immediately, but it's certainly evolving. Joita, where are you at on AI at, on AI at, the, at the year's end? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating development. And I can see that it has the potential to do some good, uh, but there are, there's a lot uh, that, you know, a lot of considerations that need to be taken uh, into account, whether it's cheating on exams and students using AI to write papers or uh, replacing jobs in various industries. I mean, for all you know, in 12 months' time, we'll all be chat, you know, chat bots on the news panel <laughs> and not real people. <laughs> Uh, so I'm glad to see some efforts are being made towards regulation, but I think people also don't maybe fully understand uh, how much AI has uh, influenced our lives and, uh, you know, the various ways in which it has taken hold of our imagination, but also taken uh, root in our lives. So more education about AI might also go a long way. Yeah, just because you talked with a robot on ChatGPT does not mean that AI started the second you did that. If you're on the internet, you've been experiencing artificial intelligence for about 20 years in some way, shape, and or form. And let's be real, most of us have probably adopted AI tools in our everyday lives right now. <clears throat> I know I certainly have.
and, and and AI has a big role to play in accessibility issues too. Yeah, so that's yeah, another can of worms. Right and, and that's been explored, by the way, on the show with uh, Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller and a few other uh, tech columnists on the show too. Okay, there's been a lot of negativity here, guys. I know you've got a heart out. You got to get out of here. <laughs> but let's wrap up on something positive. Michelle, what's something positive from 2023 that makes you feel good mm -hmm. going into 2024? I have to admit, I had to do a bit here in terms of medical research. There's been some really interesting developments on Alzheimer treatments, on several, a lot of COVID research is paying dividends in other areas, and that's just starting to gain traction and gain momentum now. So I find that quite encouraging and exciting. That's a good, that's a good answer. My answer seems so <laughs> flippant in response. Uh, movie theaters are back, and I love that people are going back to theaters and experiencing them in different ways, whether it was the Taylor Swift concert, people getting dressed up to go to Barbie, and then checking mm -hmm. out Oppenheimer afterwards. It's nice that movie theaters are coming back, because I do think that is one of the best ways to engage with film as art. It's in the theater. So totally. that was super cool. Yeah. I loved that. Joita, last word goes to you. Something positive from 20. 2023 that it's almost over and we can all relax and watch a few dystopian films and you know sip holiday in eggnog and in a few you know a few days the year will be over we can flip the calendar it has been a tough year for a lot of people and i'm uh, glad that we are on the uh, on the way out and i think 2024 has the uh, possibility to look a lot brighter Always optimistic, Joita Gupta. Joita, Michelle, thank you for your insight on all these stories all throughout the year. Joita, have a lovely holidays. Talk to you in 2024. Thank you. Thank you. Happy holidays. Michelle, you have a lovely holidays as well. Safe travels. Thank Get in around. Talk to you in 2024. Happy holidays, everybody. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, what were the biggest stories of the year in the sports world? Brock Richardson shares his thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, December the 22nd, 2023, the last show of the year. Coming up in the second hour of the show, that theme continues. Year in review. What's the best content you consumed in 2023? Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will share his picks. And then, what's the biggest entertainment story of the year? Laura Bain weighs in with her thoughts on that one. But the hour begins with the Sports Chat and Brock Richardson. Let's talk about the six biggest sports stories of the year. You get to go first. What stands out to you about the year that LeBron James had? LeBron James breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's points record. Kareem held this record for more than 40 years at 38,387 points, which now LeBron has overtaken. And this is really, really good. I I love this. I love following towards the end of 
you know, the run as we got closer and closer and more celebrities were hanging around to celebrate it with him. And I just, I loved it. And overall, Dave, I would say for LeBron, just how invested he is this year, it feels, in 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 being as good as he can be. I love what I'm seeing from LeBron. It blows me away that LeBron James is essentially my age, a little bit younger, a few months younger than me, but he is still one of not he's still one of the best players in the league it's it's wild the 39 years old he's the oldest yeah. active player in the league and he's still one of the best players in the league it blows me away my story also relates to lebron lebron james sort of the la lakers won the nba's inaugural in-season tournament my thought isn't about who won or whether or not i liked the format of the tournament it's about how the nba is willing to evolve as a sport they expanded their playoffs a few years ago now they're doing something to add stakes in the middle of the regular season it's not groundbreaking but it shows imagination. And when you compare it to a league like the National Hockey League that is perpetually stuck in the cement, it's just so, so refreshing to me. Brock, you've also got the business of sport on the mind. Why is the National Football League still king? You can say what you want about the National Football League with uh, you know, their injuries and head injuries and what we know now and all these things. But I just want to put out there the... NFL is still king. They hold 18 million people on average per week per game that they have. So the NFL still stands out to be king. They pour in a bunch of revenue. And to me, that's one of the biggest stories of the year. Uh, yeah. For me. 18 million on average. But then you get some yeah. of the big games that end up running in the 40 and 50 million viewer mark. The Super Bowl did over 100 million people last, last winter, which again is just a mind-blowing number. Even things like college football. The Michigan-Ohio State game in late November did 22 million people. That equates to the number one broadcast of anything else that happened on TV, right? So when you think about, like, like when you think about non-football, they can only just touch sort of like the bottom of the football rung, not the top. So it really shows where the NFL, in the business of sport, continues just to be the king. Yeah, I agree 100%. Wow, unbelievable. So the NFL may be king, but I've got the queen on my mind. Spain won the Women's World Cup in the summer. The singular result wasn't necessarily what made the Women's World Cup interesting. The tournament represented something bigger in women's soccer. It's a changing of the guard. The two-time defending champ, the United States, eliminated early in the knockout stage. Olympic champion Canada got bounced in the group stage. Morocco, Jamaica, Nigeria, South Africa, they all advanced to the knockout stage for the first time in their country's histories. There's different development models popping up all over the world. European soccer clubs, they're professionalizing women's soccer. Other, other countries are utilizing the American university soccer system as a talent incubator. Meanwhile, athletes are still fighting for equity with their national programs, but women's soccer is on a launching pad. So the Christine Sinclair generation, it might be on its way out. We had a great party for Christine Sinclair a couple weeks ago for her last game in Canada at BC Place. But a whole new golden generation is being ushered in, and that is fantastic. Brock, you and I both have baseball on the brain for our top story. 
our top story of 2023. And yours might have a little bit of recency by it, bias, but it's Shohei Otani signing his $700 million contract with the LA Dodgers. And some people may be out here thinking, oh, you kind of mailed it in on your first pick. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. When you sign a seven hundred million dollar deal with an organization as a two tool player being able to pitch and hit, even though he's not gonna be able to do it the first season, that makes a big difference. We haven't seen this since Babe Ruth did it like long, long time ago. This money equates to something. This is the largest contract, not only in baseball, but in sports history. That's why it lands in my number one spot. Bigger than Lionel Messi and his Miami contract, bigger than any other European soccer contract, football, basketball, yeah, you name it, $700 million as a player who's transforming the game both within America, but also leading to an explosion of the game in Japan. You just saw the LA Dodgers yesterday shelling out another $325 million for a Japanese pitcher, Yamamoto, who's going to be coming over this year. And like, it's just remarkable to see the explosion of the game in Japan, which actually all got kicked off, Brock, with the World Baseball Classic, when America and Japan played in the gold medal game before the baseball season even started, where Shohei Otani was on the mound pitching to his former teammate Mike Trout for the game in the bottom of the ninth inning. It was incredible. Like, Shohei Otani has been the only way you can look at baseball for the entirety of 23. People can accuse you of mailing it in, but I think you're bang on. Shohei Otani is the biggest sports story of 2023. Yeah, I 100%. And, like, if you look at it even when you think about the, the World Baseball Classic, like, how perfect could that have how much more perfect could that have ended with Mike Trout being at the plate and Shohei Otani pitching and all this and I believe if memory serves me correctly he struck him out he did Um, he did but but yeah I mean this couldn't have been any more picture perfect so for me Shohei Otani gets my number one spot I do wish I was talking about him in a different uniform but I digress. I'm not yeah. bitter at all, Dave. So, yeah, well, the, listen, the, the, the Blue Jays and some journalism and some broadcast ethics uh, around Shohei Otani, that's a, that's a different conversation for, for a different day. Brock, my top story is also about baseball, by the way, because I agree with you. Shohei Otani is a massive story. I also think that moment in the World Baseball Classic was my favorite sports moment of 2023. I remember clinging to a friend at the bar watching it live because it was that thrilling. But I've also got baseball on the brain specifically baseball's new rules. Major League Baseball introduced new rules to speed up the pace of play this year. The biggest one, the mandated pitch clock, ensuring action every 15 to 20 seconds. In the aggregate, it's saved about 30 minutes per game. That's a lot of like that's a lot of minutes when you multiply it by 162 games. The pitch clock improved the pace of play, stolen bases went up, contact hitting went up. It set the table for what was the most exciting baseball season in years. Brock, I think, again, this goes back to sort of my first idea around the NBA's in-season tournament. It seems like sports is evolving, and it's evolving fairly quickly in front of our eyes. Yeah, and the the, the comment that I want to make on your number one story is that I was one of these people when I started, started hearing about the pitch clock because that was the first thing we heard about eons ago being tested in the minors, all that, all that good stuff. I was one of these people that said, 
Yeah, but I love baseball for what it is. I love baseball. And I know that the the, the new generation is going to say, yeah, but it's got to be sped up. And my argument always was, yeah, but those people aren't going to the game for the same reason. So leave my baseball alone. Then I started watching it, Dave, and I went, oh, wow, this is this is a whole different thing. And I even love the element that, you know, where you could only throw over to try to get a guy on any base twice and if you did it on the third time if he was attempting to steal you had to get him or he advanced the base you didn't see many pitchers go over three times very often over the season but I just I loved it but I was very dead set against it when I first started hearing about these changes in the minor because I was a traditionalist not so much anymore there you go Brock Richardson uh, a young radical man over there at the AMI sports desk hey Brock all the best to you and the family over the Christmas holidays nice chatting with you through 2023 talk to you on January January 2nd, and hopefully I'll be a happy Michigan fan after they play Alabama in the uh, semifinals of the college football playoffs on January 1st. Dave, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and the team. I love doing this all year, and I look forward to another year in 2024. Thanks for all you do as well. Right on. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, the year in review continues. What was the best content of 2023? Entertainment critics Michael McNeely, Amy Amanti, and Kim Thistle share their top picks. And then, what's the biggest entertainment story of the year? Entertainment reporter Laura Bain will chime in. Lots coming your way on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. 2023 was an eventful year in the film and TV industry, even with the writers and actors strike. A lot of content made its debut on the big screen or on streaming platforms. Some worked, some didn't, (laughs) and some flew under the radar. And that's where the beauty of having three different entertainment critics on the show comes into place. Michael McNeely is one of them. He joined me in studio yesterday to learn his thoughts on the best content of the year. All right, saying good morning and hello to Michael McNeely. Michael, hello. Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> All right, Michael, best of the year. Let's start with feature films. What blew you away this year and why? Well, I picked Western, which is on Netflix for my number one pick of this year. And the reason I did that is because of Coleman Domingo's performance, another Euphoria alum. That show is actually making a lot of great stars. And Coleman plays Bayard Weston, who was one of the key players in the civil rights movement in 1960s. But because of his openly gay lifestyle, he was more or less shadowed and closeted because he just didn't fit the image of what others wanted the civil rights movement to be. Mm. Um, what's interesting about this film is the friendship that Bayard has with Martin Luther King, and we can see that Martin Luther King was not necessarily a perfect human being. 
He was wonderful. He was great. He did amazing things, but he was still a human being. And so he had some insecurities around uh, Bayard's homosexuality, and Bayard has to sort of keep his stiff upper lip and not let others bring him down. Because, as you know, when you're starting a social movement or when you're running a grassroots organization, there could be lots of backbiting as people vie for leadership positions or try and take on different responsibilities. And Bayard was often the victim of blackmailing, backbiting, and all those things, as you can imagine, being openly gay in the 1960s, especially as a black man. Um, he faced so many challenges. And again, I just want to say that Coleman Domingo just— he just becomes a different person altogether. He becomes that living reincarnation of Bayard, and I don't think you can ask for anything more in an actor. Okay, so Rustin on Netflix as uh, your pick for uh, feature film of the year. Uh, you are not the only entertainment critic on the show. Kim Thistle chimes in from time to time. Her favorite movie this year was Far Away, an international film on Netflix with subtitles. It follows the story of a middle-aged woman who inherits a home in Croatia. Kim describes it as... The main character is coming into herself after being everything for everyone else, a daughter, a wife, and mother. So that's Kim Thistle's pick, Far Away. My pick, Michael, is a film that you can find on Amazon Prime. It's called Air. It's all about Nike deciding and going through the process of signing Michael Jordan to a shoe contract. It stars Matt Damon. It stars Jason Bateman. It stars Viola Davis. Again, heavy hitters in the industry, big-time established stars. It was a movie that was well-paced, incredibly directed, a fantastic aesthetic that was consistent throughout. And most importantly, it was a film that had heart. I walked out of that movie feeling like I connected to the characters. So for me, my favorite feature film of the year was Air. I also made my top 25, so I'll give you that. I think I think um, I just missed Michael Jordan. I just wanted to see more Michael Jordan. But I understand why he wasn't there. I understand it's more about his mother. But, yeah, it's a, it's a story about a mom's love for her kid and the fact that her mom would not let anything screw with her kid's life. It was also a story about breaking the mold, right? Business people who think outside of the box, and Michael Jordan and his mother, who also are thinking outside of the box, out of the shoebox, if you will. I just thought it was really well done. It was really brilliant. And frankly, it's a pretty easy watch, right? It's it's under it's under two hours. It moves along at a nice snappy pace. It's well acted. You get cameos here and there. I, I, I just think when you're looking for a couple of good hours of taking in a film, it's not super challenging, but it is very interesting. I think you're touching on an important theme is that movies are getting longer and longer these days, and especially when you talk about the number of trailers they show at Cineplex. It's, I think you probably watched a half hour of trailers before, or advertisements before the movie starts. You're talking about a very uncomfortable watch if you don't watch and miss anything. So again, I say the golden, golden number of minutes is 90. Two hours can be forgivable, but three hours, I'm starting to ask questions about my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you as well. Okay, Michael, let's uh, switch over to uh, documentaries. What story was the most captivating for you? 
Well, I cheated in this one, and I picked two documentaries, partly because they both go to the same thing. First is, and is anybody out there? Is there anybody out there? I think that's how it goes. Um, I think you can see pictures of it. So, this is Ella Glendinning, who is the director, and she also has a body difference that I won't necessarily label, because it might also be unlabelable. Um, she's trying to find others like her, others with the same body as her, so that they can both relate to the same experiences. And ultimately, I found it very empowering, because as a deafblind person myself, it can be hard to find other deafblind people in similar positions or with similar interests. Um, but the message of the movie is that Everybody has their own battles to fight, and we can still relate to other people's battles, even if we're not 100 percent the same. Um, and I paired that with still the Michael J. Fox movie, which we've talked about. Um, mm -hmm. And I just think Michael J. Fox, not only because he has the same first name I do, is just a hero. Um, it talks about his, his efforts to try and hide his Parkinson's during um, Spin City and Back to the Future 3, where he would be shaking and he would try and make that part of the acting of the scene. And it talks about his his difficulties. And in all fairness, I probably need to read his biography, because um, he just puts his heart and soul into the, into the movie. And I think he and Ella would be friends. So that's why those two are together. Yeah, one of the great privileges of my career was getting a chance to speak to Michael J. Fox a couple of years ago, just before he released his biography. And he talked about the journey of honesty about disability, coming to terms with him, not just coming to terms with his own disability in his own experience, but how to express that to other people. Michael J. Fox is someone who's given it a lot of thought, and it showed in this documentary, and it showed in the book as well. Yeah, Michael, jo Michael J. Fox has become just a very, very interesting story and become a very interesting avatar for broader conversations about disability in the mainstream. Yeah, so those two movies, I think you have a very day of thoughts and uh, meditations on what it means to have a disability. Mm. Speaking of other entertainment critics on the show, Amy Amanti really loved the documentary Poisoned, the Dirty Truth About Your Food. Let's hear what Amy had to say. A couple of the highlights for me were the documentary Poisoned. Uh, Poisoned was a documentary about uh, the food growth, both meat and veg, in the United States, how we uh, grow and um, cultivate vegetables, um, how we farm our meat, and uh, the process that it goes through before and once it lands in our grocery stores. Um, and while this is a U.S.-based documentary, uh, a lot of our food in Canada is imported from the United States, and some of our uh, systems are set up legislatively quite similar. Uh, so anytime I have an opportunity to learn about these systems, I think that that's a benefit, and so I thought it to be really intriguing. So that was Amy's pick. 
Kim Thistle identified a documentary that you also really enjoyed, and that was Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make Believe on Prime Video. Here was Kim's quote that she mailed in. The Mr. Dress Up show was ahead of its time in inclusion, social consciousness, and feminism. The documentary highlighted the impact he had on others and gave the simple message of be kind. Michael, you liked this documentary as well. Yes. Pop quiz time. Who was his best friend? I don't know. I didn't watch Mr. Dress Up. Oh, come on. His best friend was Mr. Watch, which was pretty obvious. Oh, you mean in real life? <laughs> yes. No, I mean, they, they both started in Canada. And then Mr. Waters ended up over, going over to Pittsburgh, where he made history. And they both kept in touch over the years. So I think it's, it's, it's amazing. It's interesting, though, that Mr. Dressup talks about Mr. Waters, but I, th I don't think the Mr. Waters documentary talked about Mr. Dressup. It was an oversight now that we can realize, because both of them worked together in children's programming, and both of them left a lasting legacy of being kind to your neighbors. And, you know, my parents grew up on Mr. Dress Up, and I unfortunately did not, but I still got the spirit from Mr. Waters. There's a good segue here from a documentary about a TV show to the favorite shows of 2023. So over in the world of television and streaming, Amy Amanti really enjoyed Painkiller, starring Uzo Abuda and Matthew Broderick. Let's hear what Amy thinks. The other thing that I really enjoyed watching was a, a six-episode series called Painkiller. Um, and this one was uh, showcasing the marketing behind the family that made the opioid crisis an epidemic in the United States, the rise of the opioid crisis. Um, this was quite fascinating and quite tragic to watch at the same time. And so, um, you know, if you're sitting at home and asking yourself when you watch the news and you hear the statistics of how many people are dying uh, from opioid overdoses, both in Canada and the United States, how did this happen? This is an interesting one to check out. And yes, it is dramatized. It's not a documentary. It is based on true stories, and they do have uh, real stories captured at the beginning of every episode. So they put a real human face on this. So that's Amy's pick, Painkiller. Michael, what's your pick for a series or a season that completely nailed it in the TV and streaming world? I say that if you're ever feeling sad because of Amy's pick, you can watch um, Abbott Elementary. And we are talking about the second season, but you should start with the first season, obviously. Um, this is probably just the most happy, cheerful, cheerful, heartfelt show that I have ever seen. And it's the story of teachers that work hard every day to ensure that their children, their students, are able to leave the school smiling and happy. I don't think there's a better message than that. Um, the ensemble cast is amazing. That goes from Quinta Brunson to Cheryl Lee Ralph, and they all play different kinds of teachers. I was also happy to see an openly gay teacher because when I was growing up, there was always a controversy about being gay and working for the Catholic school board probably still is, um, but all those teachers just make comedy magic together, and then there's the principal, who just doesn't care about anything except herself, and she's just so funny. Um, 
And so I have to end with a story of how the show helped me. I had two slip clinics, and I was going to be fitted with a CPAP machine. I was pretty down in the dumps about it. But then I saw Shirley Ralph as Barbara, the religious, scuffy teacher, wear a CPAP machine when she went on a field trip with the students in one of the shows. And what was funny is, what was so genius about it was that the principal actually set this joke up, a long-winded joke in the episode, that, oh, there's an alien around here, and she was scaring the children. But you discover that it's Barbara wearing her CPAP. And then she tits off her CPAP and says, I'm not an alien, I'm just using this to sleep. <laughs> but to see Cheryl, Cheryl E. Ralph, who is probably the most amazing uh, actress, performer, anyone you can imagine, and in great shape um, wearing a CPAP machine, let me know that there was nothing to worry about on my end. I like that, I like that. So my pick for a series or season that really stood out this year is also in the world of comedy, although not quite the feel-good comedy that you seem to have in mind. Mine falls a little bit more into the awkward or cringe category. <laughs> it's I Think You Should Leave on Netflix. I don't know if you've uh, watched it at all. It stars Tim Robinson, or Tim Robinson is the driving force behind it who is just the most bizarro, weirdo comedian in the world. There's no continuity to the show, it's just a series of sketches, but it really gets ah. at the oddity and weirdness of human interaction, and there's something about that that really works for me. I'd say it's almost like a modern take on Seinfeld, just, just through sketch comedy. And I have to apologize for screaming randomly, but that is exactly what Tim Robinson would do. And I, I just, you know what I mean? I just, I can only watch Tim Robinson for 10 minutes <laughs> yeah. at a time. Yeah, it's not bingeable. It's the kind of show where you're gonna watch one episode, you're going to walk away, and then you're gonna come back the next day or the day after. And the beauty is the episodes are only about 12 to oh, 15 yes. minutes long, so it is digestible, that's for sure. No, yeah, I think, I think you can watch them and you can learn about social interactions and you can learn about the realness of social interactions. and. I remember the sensitivity training one that was ridiculous. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, yeah, definitely uh, worth worth checking out if you want to do a little bit of cringing and uh, if people screaming uh, makes you laugh because every now and then people losing their temper can be uh, funny. Okay, let's end on a, a sincere note here. A show that got a lot of buzz at the tail end of the year was the limited network series All the Light We Cannot See on Netflix. The show is being labeled as a big game changer for the film and TV industry. Amy and Mancy had a lot of praise for the show. Let's hear Amy's thoughts. Now, while I would say that this, from a storytelling perspective, may not have been sort of the greatest example of storytelling, there were a lot of really great things about this film in terms of uh, perhaps changing the way Hollywood looks at disability representation in film, television, on screen, right? Um, authentic casting of lead characters, that's a big plus. Uh, the hiring of uh, blind consultants to be a part of the process every step of the way. Taking a real close examination of what cane use uh, and the reading of Braille, um, the style of canes and how folks used them uh, in the 1940s, because this movie is set in the 1940s, what that looked like authentically, 
um, was a real plus. Uh, the use of audio description and how they broke some of the rules, um, and this is big for the Americans, folks, so we are already doing this work in Canada, but it's big for the Americans um, to break some of the traditional framework of audio description um, to provide more Michael, I want to give last word to you. What are some of your takeaways from the buzz and conversation around all the light we cannot see? Well, to be honest, I haven't seen all the light we cannot see because I wanted to defer to our colleague here. Mm -hmm. um, but I did teach the book, and uh, I think the story is important. And also, that's why we also did cover some World War One and World War Two stories mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. that as well. And it's important to realize that there are people with disabilities throughout history that have but to be recognized and they have tried to live their lives as simply and as effectively as possible given the undue circumstances that they were faced with. And while it may seem like the main character of all the night, you cannot say is privileged. They find themselves in a situation where they have to fight to survive. And Representation, again, matters, because we, 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 we as a community are happy to see that there's a person with a disability playing the main character of all the light we cannot see. And it's just a matter of asking, why not earlier? Why, why now? Why, why, why have we had to wait for so long just to be seen? Michael, that's a great thought to leave off an incredible year of conversation. Thank you for all the work that you do. All the best to you and the family and friends and loved ones over the holidays. Talk to you in 2024. Thank you, and be safe, everyone. Make sure you have snow tires on your way to the cinema. That's my conversation with entertainment critic Michael McNeely on some of the best content of the year in entertainment. You can find his full best of list online at letterboxd. Dot com slash McNeely Mike. So bo box D is spelled B-O-X-D and McNeely is spelled M-C-N-E-E-L-Y. And of course, a big thank you to Amy Amanti and Kim Thistle for also chiming in to be a part of that uh, report. Staying in the world of entertainment, that's the content side, but there are bigger, broader themes to pull at from the year. And Laura Bain, that's the theme of your entertainment report today, the biggest entertainment story of the year. Yeah, that's right. So there were lots of big stories this year, hard to narrow it down. But I think to me, undisputably, the biggest story was the Hollywood labor disputes. And so the writers and actors strikes. Um, so I'll get your thoughts on that, I guess, in a moment. But um, yeah, so the writers went on strike at the beginning of May, and then the actors joined them in July. And uh, in both cases, you know, the major, major studios who were pretty, like, resolute ended up caving to their major demands, uh, which, of course, uh, you know, a lot of it had to do with the use of artificial intelligence and residual payments from streaming content. Mm. But just to talk about the impact, so there were 45,000 job losses and a $6.5 billion cost just in Southern California. Wow, wow. And we know that the impacts went well beyond that, of course, and impacts here in Canada where lots of productions do their filming. Um, and I think we'll be feeling these 
impacts for quite a while. Um, you know, we had late night TV shows that were impacted, scripted shows like Stranger Things, um, but also a lot of movies that have been disrupted and yeah, in some cases yeah. have had their release dates pushed from 2024 to 2025. Um, and, you know, you and I had a conversation, I think it was last week about Netflix releasing those streaming numbers. Uh, we don't quite yet know what's going to be passed on to the consumer in terms of the cost here, but safe to say, you know, they're, uh, while it is a positive thing, we will be feeling the impacts for a little while. Yeah, I was super bummed out that a movie, uh, Dune Part 2, which was supposed to come mm -hmm. out in November, got pushed into the spring. In the end, that one's going to come out, and I'm delighted. I cannot wait for Dune. A big Denis Villeneuve fan, the director of the film, and I loved the first one. So I'm on I'm on pins and needles waiting for that one, Laura. But I 100% I am with you. This was the biggest entertainment story of the year. But if, I were, but if I were to just maybe, like, shift a little bit here in terms of my focus, I would also tell you that contained in this story or related to this story is the fracturing of the streaming world. The difficulty as a consumer to actually get your eyes and ears on the content that you want. That, that think that there are so many streaming services now that you would actually need to pay a monthly fee to, to get access to all the content you want. That fracturing became very apparent in 2023. And although some companies like Netflix, for example, rebounded from some difficult financial numbers earlier in the year, companies like Warner Brothers and uh, HBO Max, that merger has gone very poorly. Disney is losing a ton of money on their streaming services. So in the end, this pivot to a mass fractured streaming world has been bad for the consumer and bad for business. So I wonder looking into 2024, how much that's going to carry over. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I feel that, you know, as a student and since taking on this entertainment reporter position, I've, you know, uh, picked up a couple of streaming services, but you, you can't pick up them all and you think, oh, I wish I could see that. And something that I've uh, been consuming more is those free um streaming services like Pluto and Tubi. And, yes, uh, yes. I know that those are on the rise in popularity, and I can understand why, because, you know, I'll put up with a with some ads in order to get free content. Yeah, so there was some numbers that Netflix put out this week about how right now the advertising package, which I believe is running for about $6.99 or $7.99 in Canada, they're actually trying to get people to move to that package because it's more monetizable for them. They're actually making more money on somebody paying 6 or $7 a month for their advertisement tier package rather than the suckers like me who are paying $19 a month for a commercial free experience. I don't know why I am more resistant to the ads with services like Netflix. Maybe it's, you know, if I'm paying anything for it, I don't want to put up yeah, with those ads. Yeah. Then with services like Jam or Pluto or Tubi, I feel perfectly willing to put up with ads because I'm literally paying nothing for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also wonder if we've been conditioned by the experience, right? That for our, yeah. to our mind, the use of something like Netflix is meant to be done ad free. So we don't like the addition, whereas we've been normalized to ads in other spaces. It, it, there's, there's maybe a bit of a, a social psychology component to mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I think that's very true. It feels like a bit of a step back in the experience. Hey, Laura, you've been a late addition to the family on Now with Dave Brown this year, but it has been wonderful to have you aboard. Thank you for your constant, incredible contribution to the team. Have a lovely holiday season with the family and with the loved ones. Talk to you in January of 2024.
Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. It's been great joining the team and uh, you have a great holiday as well. All right on. That is Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, how are you handling, handling loyalty and rewards programs? Elizabeth Moeller has some stats about just how prominent those programs are in the lives of Canadians. So she wants to get my thoughts, Elizabeth, uh, Ramya Amuthan's thoughts, and Nizreen Abdelmajid's thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Starting the segment off with a little bit of housekeeping here. Housekeeping! Housekeeping! For dedicated listeners and viewers, you heard on the Wednesday edition of the show just an amuse-bouche, an appetizer of a conversation about decluttering. That conversation was supposed to come to the roundtable yesterday, then the internet went out at AMI-HQ, so there was no second hour of the show. There was no roundtable yesterday, so you didn't get to hear Ramya Amuthan's thoughts on how to actually live your life minimalistically and declutter your place properly. Not going to do that today, but in the business, they call this a front sell. January 2nd, the day the show comes back from holiday break, at about 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time, the entire roundtable conversation will be dedicated to decluttering your dwelling. So mark your calendars for that one right now. I promise you that's going to be the case. And you know me, I never break a promise. But for today's roundtable topic with Nazreen Abdelmajid and Ramya Amuthan, Elizabeth Moeller, you've got a topic here all about loyalty and rewards programs. It's true, I do. You know, we all love those rewards programs, but I don't know, keeping track of them can be really difficult. Over 90% of Canadians have joined at least one loyalty program, with the average being more than 12 oh my gosh. programs. That's that's a lot of programs. But you know, with the holidays upon us, we, we want to maybe spend those points or earn some more points. And with all those loyalty programs on the go, I thought we could chat about our experience managing points and programs and keeping all the clutter straight, so you can get that clutter back in there. So how do you keep track of your loyalty points and know when they are about to expire? Oh, dear. Premia. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I start with you, Rami, although I'm curious what Dave's uh, oh dear was about. Yeah, I was going to say, I know how to keep track of where my points are, like where the cards are, because I just put them in my Apple wallet now. So easy. Um, all the, oh. you know, yeah. Nice. Oh my gosh, guys, nice. you don't even have to carry physical anything anymore. Yes. Yeah, so you can just upload everything onto your wallet. So your PC Optimums, your Air Miles, your Aeroplan, your whatever, literally whatever oh loyalty card oh. you have, oh. put it in your virtual wallet and bam, that's the easiest way to not have to bring your wallet anywhere, like your physical wallet anywhere, number 
number one and number two um go through the physical wallet with the uh the person at the cash and be like is this it is it this no okay. um, <laughs> i do remember those days <laughs> very embarrassing um <laughs> so anyways but elizabeth to the second part of your question which is how do you know your points are going to expire i have no idea i actually try to go use my aeroplan points and then you know on air canada or something and then they'll be like sorry you don't have enough and that's when i realized oh I thought I was getting a lot of points. Apparently not. So uh, somebody else has got to give us the tips on that one. I, I don't have a tip on that one. My tip is just don't be part of too many loyalty programs. I've got, the air, I've got the air miles. I've got my RBC visa points. I've got my Hotels.com uh, membership uh, program. And in terms of the, the ones that I actively use, that's it. That's all. So my, my method of keeping track is only join a couple of them. Nazreen, what's your approach? Thanks for the advice, Dave, because I'm one of those people that can't say no to these oh my reward gosh. plans. <laughs> Would you like to join the Petro Canada Reward Program? I don't email. I have one dedicated email to all my reward and loyalty uh, uh, and, and even the promotions that I get. So <laughs> that's one dedicated uh, email, which is smart because my other email can't you know, clutter up. So, um, but here's the problem. I do, I didn't, I forgot that they expire. So when you mentioned the expiring thing and I'm like, Oh, I should really check that out somehow. Cause I I've been, I'm the type to save, 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 save. And mm-hmm. I rarely spend my points because oh, I'm like, oh, yeah. I can get something big. Got to do that. <laughs> That's one of the things you've got to make a habit of doing. So, for example, with Air mm-hmm. Miles, they, they take it at my grocery store. Whenever I reach yes. a certain threshold, it pops up on the screen. Do you want to use these <gasps> points helpful. for this cashback? Yeah. Boom. Yep. Yes, every single time. Oh, I should mention that I also uh, am a... Uh, uh, via rail, via preference member as oh, well. Yeah. So I'm up to four. I'm up to four. But that one, like, it only gets used in all oh, five scene points. Oh gosh, it, I'm getting I'm getting cluttered here in my wallet just thinking about it. <laughs> Elizabeth, do you have an answer to your own question about in terms of keeping track of expiry dates? I do. I've uh, been using um, an app called Award Wallet, which helps you not only just like like Rami was saying, track how many you have, but also helps you with the tracking and you can get like a little notification that pops up. I will confess, though, that I, I knew that Starbucks had a specific time limit to which points need to be used. I didn't realize that if your account had been dormant for a while surprise your points disappear and that was very sad that was not a happy christmas present so now i've set up notifications to tell me when i get i guess they call it stars and the thing is often it goes to my junk mail in my inbox so i've now like moved it so it's going right to my inbox as well as coming up on my phone i i do have to say that with the via preference i make a habit when i book my trip maybe this is the student brain in me to go do i have enough points and anytime it says yes yeah. I book, even yeah. if it's a company. Every time. Every, every, <laughs> yeah. Se- yeah. every, time. every time. Every time. When the points are there and you can use them, use them. That's just the general good approach on this kind of stuff. Hey, Elizabeth, great topic. I'm going to say goodbye to you. Have a lovely holiday season with loved ones and family. And thank you for the gift you gave me yesterday. Very kind of you. You're welcome, Dave. Happy holidays to you and yours. Nazreen, all the best over the holiday season to you as well. Loved chatting with you this year. Uh, Congratulations on what was a very exciting year for you with the engagement and the marriage. Thank you, Dave. You too. Uh, just before I bring in Ramya for a, for a throw to what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today, while 
we're talking to you about loyalty points and rewards points and the possibility of points expiring. I just want to give a shout out to a charity that a friend of mine is deeply involved with. It's called Give a Mile, where they ask folks to uh, donate points to try and uh, buy tickets around the holidays or other times of year for people going through significant medical distress uh, to get to spend time with their families or loved ones. Uh, give a Mile is the uh, charity. They do really, really incredible work. Uh, give a Mile, worth uh, checking out. Rumya, you are hosting Kelly and Rumya this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI. What's coming up on the last show of the year? Yeah, this is the last live show of the year. So first of all, number one, I do want to give people a reminder that December 29th is when our primetime special aware, uh, airs. So please tune in because it's super fun. 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI TV and then available on all the on-demand services, including AMI+. So today on the show, we have um, basically a super festive show. It includes festive trivia with Grant Hardy and three surprise contestants. Fern Lullum and her besties from the UK always put together an annual skit for us it's hilarious like tears will be running down your cheeks from how hard you laugh they're so good and this time the theme is christmas chaos with your families and then we have a showcase with reads and memories and everything else that comes from our contributors and fans ramya thank you for this all the best over the holidays you too dave that's ramya amuthan coming up after the break i say goodbye to you and wish you a happy holidays this is now with dave brown on ami tv Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Just a couple of seconds before the show wraps up for the week and wraps up for the year to wish you a happy holidays. Thank you for making the time to be a part of this show right from the start of the year. Without you, I would just be talking to myself. So all the best to you and yours over the holiday season. The show's back on January the 2nd at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Happy holidays. Don't drink and drive. Operacion de Rouge and Red Nose in your neck of the woods. Let's roll those credits. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Entertainment reporter, Laura Bain. Contributors, Rami Amuthan, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanero. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion jones Bob Pagrak. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. DV producer, Mark Phoenix. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations Coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of Operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of Live Productions, Paula Deneen. Director of Content Development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. 
Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.